For over 100 years, naval military professionals have counted on Naval Institute press books such as the Chief Petty Officer's Guide to prepare them for their responsibilities as they advance in their careers and to serve as a ready reference and refresher guide when needed. The Chief Petty Officer's Guide and the Cutlass Podcast are useful tools for chiefs of any experience level, petty officers who aspire to advance to chief, or anyone looking to reflect on the state of their leadership and management skills while benefiting from the experiences and insights of a variety of accomplished leaders. Get your copy of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide today using the links in the episode description or online at your bookstore of choice. Signed copies can be ordered at www.cutlassleadership.com. And make sure to subscribe to the Cutlass Podcast today so you can work to become a more sturdy, versatile, and credible leader. Now let's jump into the next episode of the Cutlass Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to another edition of the Cutlass Podcast. Today, I think it's time to do another leadership interview and get some leadership perspective. And a former shipmate colleague of mine, Joe Ortloff, she's a retired command mass chief and fleet mass chief. She did a lot of great things on active duty, stellar career. She started out in the air traffic controller rating and then eventually was selected into the command mass chief program back in 2003. She completed her career, which was about 33 years as a first female fleet mass chief for Naval Forces Europe and Africa fleet mass chief. And then she retired around 2015. She was recognized in 2000 with the Captain Joy Bright Hancock Leadership Award and graduated several leadership schools. And since retiring, she now volunteers for organizations that benefit those still serving. I know she's actively engaged in the Surface Navy Association as the West Coast Vice President, and she's on the Chief of Naval Operations Trusted Advisor Group the President's Advisory Board, National Surface Navy Museum. She's an ambassador for the Women in Military Services Museum for America, and she's doing a lot of great work. So, Joe, thanks for taking time to join me. It's great to catch up with you. How are you? Hi, Paul. Wow. Gee, that person sounds like they've been pretty busy in that intro. I'm pretty good living here in Bullhead, Arizona and Bullhead City and enjoying the the opportunities of... I don't know, all of these great social media sites that post for young sailors and young military learning today, and I'm happy to be a part of that when I can. You know, I told you earlier, you on my long list here of potential guests to get and people I'd love to hear perspectives from. You've got great perspective. You've served from what we'd call the tactical level or the direct level of leadership all the way up to the strategic level, and you've learned a lot, and you wanted to cover down on your top five lessons learned while serving in those leadership positions and serving as a chief petty officer in the United States Navy. And I think that's great content for any leader, whether you're military, Navy, civilian, to hear these perspectives, because as I read through them, they resonate with me and they definitely apply all over the place. So are you ready to dive into them? I am. Let's go with the first one. So the first lesson learned, don't wait for things to happen to you, make them happen for you. So tell us about that and how you learned that lesson. Well, um, I actually solidified that lesson and kind of put it into those words when I was a young chief petty officer at Naval Air Station Lemoore. And actually, it was while I was select for chief, but I hadn't really put the anchors on yet. And my leading chief at the time, Tom, he, you know, had me write this uh, report for AirPAC. I did up the report and I sent it in. You know, the next day, Tom said to me, hey, where is uh, the response from AirPAC? And I said, oh, well, I, I haven't gotten an email back from them. And Tom said to me, 
you know, AirPack has a lot of command and they have a lot of work and a lot of folks like you, like us, are submitting reports and waiting for feedback. So don't think that yours is the most important one for them, but it's the most important one for you. So if you wait for them to call you back or email you, you'll be on their priority list. So don't wait for them to respond to your urgent requirement. You need to follow up and you need to make that phone call and say, hey, professionally, I sent the report in. Did you get that? And what's your feedback? And so I thank Tom for putting that perspective into me as a sailor, as a leader. Uh, and that's where I kind of grew from that. So that would have been at the direct level, but, you know, let's go up to being the third fleet mass chief or the fleet mass chief level. Were that lesson you were able to apply it to make something happen? Oh, absolutely. I would say while working as the uh, fleet master chief in Europe and Africa with, you know, some very senior level folks, four-star admiral, UCOM, SACUR, four-star general, some very senior policymakers. Um, so where I kind of applied that to was the challenge to write some bystander intervention policy for my admiral. And, you know, he he asked for some input and, you know, he wanted it within a, a 72 hours. And I had asked him for some more specifics that where he wanted to go with the bystander intervention uh, and his policy. And, you know, he's a busy man and yeah. he had some things going on. So, you know, I went ahead and reached out to the command master chiefs in the area, uh, as well as to the Air Force because, and the Army, uh, you know, my counterparts, because, you know, like you said, it doesn't matter what military service you're in. There's a lot of things that cross over for each other. And this was one policy that did that. And so I just went ahead and took the reins and kind of did some deep dives into other policies the service was doing and, and get some feedback from the fleet leadership on what they were experiencing and put together this package and just kind of put it up on the admiral's table for review and chief of staff and, and we ran with it. And it turned out to be a very good product that we turned over to uh, Navy proper. Yeah, I was thinking where this resonates with me. This lesson is my first flag level tour out in Joint Region Marianas. So you get out there, you've worked at the tactical level. There's a structure, there's a plan of a day, plan of a week. There's routines, things that drive your daily output. And frankly, you can connect that daily energy to some kind of direct output, right? So you can do a career development board. You can see the direct result. And then as you get up in these higher levels, checked into Joint Region Marianas, I get in there and I'm like, okay, sitting in the chair, I'm like, what now, right? There's not a lot of direct level guidance. So I called Steve Markham, who you know, and was at the time the CNIC Force Mass Chief. Well, actually, he called me just to check and I was like, you know, what are you up to? And I was like, here's kind of what I'm thinking. I'm not uh, being told a lot what to do. There's not a lot of guidance and intent per se. So I plan to do this. And he told me, he's like, hey, Paul, you could just literally sit in that chair, answer the phone and do emails all day. But I know you're going to go out there and you're going to engage in your own unique way and make it happen. So I think it also ties into the conversation I just had with Pat McMahon on the last episode about becoming a leader of consequence and using the position you're given and the reach and the access it provides to the full extent. So I think that's a great lesson learned for anyone to take from the tactical or direct level of leadership all the way up to the strategic. You nailed that one when I was selected as well. You know, the... The first um, piece of advice I got from Jackie DeRosa, the first female fleet master chief, and she was now in charge of managing 
these assignments. And uh, she had said to me, don't wait for them to tell you what to do. They didn't hire you to tell you what to do. They hired you because they expected you to know what you were doing. Yes. And so I think you nailed it. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes we let our own villains get in the way, right? And, you know, you just got to make sure, don't assume that people aren't there. Just go out there and make it happen. If you're trying to good, do the good stuff with good intent, rarely, if ever, have I come across a situation where you're going to get bashed because of that. So let's move on to number two. So words matter, and I say that a lot on this podcast, right, because I want to always define certain words that we throw around. But your second lesson learned here is words matter, choose them wisely. So how did you learn this lesson? I learned that lesson. Uh, I'll start as a young sailor early on uh, with the onset of email. And when writing uh, an early email, I guess I took some liberties with language and tone and you, you know you didn't expect those we hadn't finessed that just yet yeah and um you know and hit the send button and what i was trying to say to some folks in the chain of command was not how it translated right. um and i had you know i had had a conversation versus a professional dialogue and i had used just some wording that was probably inappropriate um and some off-the-cuff remarks and I let my emotions take over my professionalism and, you know, and I was properly responded to in person and had a good chat with that uh, senior chief uh, who said, you know, you need to choose words wisely regardless of what position you're in or what pay grade or what age you are or what rating because once you hit that send button, even though you try to hit recall, people have already gotten it. And uh, so I just translated that into my own lesson learned that you have to choose them wisely, count to 10, uh, because you can't take them back, whether it's in social media or in person, in an email, and you can't let your emotions at the moment take over your professionalism when you're trying to have a responsible dialogue. You know, and your words are your character, your words are, are who you are, and especially on social media, you know, you can see yourself in some Facebook pages you might be in or tweet that, you know, you're looking at somebody who you respect and who might be professional in professional position. And then you see what they write and how they write it. And you go, wow, that is totally not who I thought they were professionally, you know, and no, it's not a joke, you know, and no, you can't hide behind some of those words uh, when you're called out on them to say, oh, I was just kidding or it was a joke because we say what we mean yeah. uh, and we mean what we say. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that email experience is important because remember, it's all in how the person receives it regardless of your intent to deliver. So that is a challenge. And that's why it's always best if you're going to communicate, communicate in person. And then the other part is learning this concept of tact. I think there was a narrative out there or whatever, a myth that, you know, as a command mashy for flea mashy for any kind of senior leader we shut the door and we just get up and quote unquote jump up and down on the boss's desk right but even there the way you deliver impacts your influence attempt right so if you're going to come at someone and you use words that are aggressive or unprofessional all you're doing is reducing your influence and you're becoming a barrier to your own success i absolutely agree especially you know in these roles as you get more senior you know, the brevity uh, is important as well. So choosing your words that can have an impact in a very short presence. My admiral at the time, you know, said, hey, I, 
and this was to the group, not specifically just me, but was the, hey, I read every email that you send. So the shorter, the better. So I can read more and capture more and learn more and be able to make more, you know, faster decisions. So that resonated with me as well when, when I say words matter, so choose them wisely. All right, number three, challenge the process, not the authority. I did a episode called, you know, how to professionally push back, quote unquote. So let's talk about this uh, lessons learned. What's your insights and how did you learn this one? Well, this one was really early on. You know, I, I'm the number six of seven children. Uh, my mother was uh, a single mother come the, the late 60s, early 70s uh, and throughout our growing up. So we challenged our, you know, mom uh, on a lot of things, and uh, she was a great uh, calmer in some very volatile situations, you know, as you're growing as a teenager. So she she actually instilled that kind of concept in me early, and I translated that as a sailor when I was a young third-class petty officer, and I know this is going to sound trite, but... I was at Point Magoo at the time, and there was a blurb in our weekly paper, the base paper, uh, actually the daily paper, and it was about the free cheese, you know, for like E5 and below and so forth. Well, the plan of the day, the plan of the day had translated the article, and it said only active duty or their wives could go and pick up the cheese. So I called the command master chief's office and not really kind of young E4, wasn't really all in the know about the whole chain of command thing. But I called the command master chief's office and I said, hey, I just want to clarify that according to the plan of the day, which is an official document, my husband can't go pick up the free cheese. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, it says only active duty and their wives can pick up the free cheese. And he said, well, you know what, what we're talking about. You know what we mean. I said, well, if you mean spouse, could you say spouse? Because that would be very helpful in the official translation. And it kind of helps my husband out because, you know, if he's going to go down to the counter there to pick up the cheese, he doesn't feel like he's challenged or out of place. You know, he kind of swallowed and said, yeah, whatever. But the next day, the plan of the day had only active duty, and then where it said wives, you could see the whiteout, because back then we used whiteout, right? We didn't yeah. have computers to do the typing. They had hand uh, printed in the word spouse. So I thought, okay, this is a triumph. I did it professionally. I made the call, and I got good results from that. So I kind of understood that if you want to be a part of professional input, go ahead and pick up the phone and call and inquire, but don't challenge the authority. It wasn't the command master chief. It was the concept that was written. So I kind of developed that hopefully personally throughout you know my career. And then as, as a senior leader in my fleet master chief role, that came in very handy, yes. <laughs> you know, learning that lesson when discussing things with senior officers and, you know, four-star generals and so forth in a closed-door environment, and I found it to be very successful. And I think it kind of blends with number two. We just talked about words matter, choose them wisely when you're challenging the process, right? A challenge the process, not the person, because when you start throwing out you and they, then you get people defensive, they retreat, and then, again, you're serving against your own best interests. So consider that. Keep that in mind if you're listening to this today. So 
All right, number four, make change for improvement, not for the sake of change. And we've seen this happen a lot, i.e. uniforms. So let's uh, let's get into that one. What's been your experience with this? Where have you seen it work well, not so well? Uh, and what do you offer the listeners? This one, you know, again, learning early on, but still learning today that change is good for the sake of improvement, not just for the sake of change. Where I, I got that from was as a, I'm going to say, young second class, uh, young first class, you know, we would transfer and then go to new commands. Well, I had arrived at a new command out at San Clemente Island, and I was a first class, just promoted. And I had taken on a position there in the flight planning office. And I had a young third class say to me, oh, are you going to change things like the last branch manager changed things and, you know, screw everything up that we've already got in place? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, every time a new leader comes in, they change things up. And so I got to thinking, are we interpreting it wrong as junior sailors or are we doing it wrong as leaders? Right. Or a little bit of both. And so, you know, I had a long chat, you know, with the group. And when we come in, you know, we're learning the environment. So when changes are made, we think we're making these changes for the sake of improvement. But you think we're making these changes just to mark our own territory. So how do we translate that? So one of the the ways that I've learned to do that, and I share with sailors in, in briefs, is when you transfer and you come into a new command or you come into a new role, it's best to just sit back for two weeks and sit on your hands, close your mouth, and, and watch how the environment works. Because what worked at your last command may not work at your new command, or you might have a better way to do something there. But when you go in and you use words like, why do you do it this way here? I have a better way, or why aren't we doing it this way? Or why aren't you doing it this way? When you use the words you, you haven't made yourself part of the team. Right. If you try to influx, you know, you try to make some changes, even if they're great ones, too early, you haven't been grown into as part of the team. And the team wants to see you learn what's going on before you open up for changes. And unless it's critical and going to save someone's life or prevent World War III, you can absolutely wait a couple of weeks. You know, we talk in some environments about it takes 21 days to accept a change or to build in a change or change of behavior. Well, that includes for ourselves when we get to new places. And so take that 21 days to actually learn and become a part of the group so that when you are ready to make some changes or offer some improvement, it's not seen as just marking your territory and just making a change for the sake of change. You can blend that in as a sake of it for the sake of improvement. I did a episode called Growing Into Your New Role. I did it with Samara McBride. She was the uh, Dell Black Leadership Award winner this year. And we talked about Resisting that immediate urge to want to come in and make change, to take time to assess what's going on, not just watch, right, but understand, listen, understand the culture you're in. It might be a different culture altogether, a different organization, a different uh, career field or professional profession. And then talking to people, right, and, uh, and learning why, right, or, hey, what things do you like? What things don't you like? What would you like to see improve? What needs to stay the same? And then also, I think, huddling your team when you come into that role, when you're considering, after you've watched, after you've sensed and learned, 
And then you start to formulate what you think is the good thing you want to do to move forward for improvement. Get the team together and huddle them and bounce it off of them. And I think that's a great way to ensure, you know, it's a system of checks and balances to make sure you don't overreach when you're going to come into a new organization and, and they'll help you not change just to change. Exactly. And, and we just as in human nature are resistant to change. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty progressive. I think I'm open to learning, but even I'm a little, you know, resistant to some change, you know, including when I got a new laptop or when I had to go to Microsoft 10 Office 7, you know, like, oh my God, change. I just got used to this. Like back in the day when we were working with Enable, you know, and learning WordStar, and then all of a sudden these things change and programs change and you have to learn something new. And it, you're resistant to that change because you're comfortable. Yes. But, you know, the, the other thing I would offer is, you know, change is good for the sake of improvement. And if we didn't accept change and we didn't learn how to build upon change, we wouldn't have iPhones or nuclear aircraft carriers. We wouldn't have laptops and hybrid cars and we wouldn't have these things in our life. And it takes change to make those improvements. So those who say don't change a good thing, well, yeah, you do need to change a good thing to make it better. And it doesn't mean the old way wasn't good. It just has out done its time and it's we need to move on yeah there's those key moments too and i think to your point about learning right so why are we uncomfortable with that kind of change is number one because when you're in the norm and the new right you're proficient and it's all efficient it's easy frankly right and i think humans naturally want to take not in a bad way just out of human nature and energy conservation they want the path of least resistance right so if i can get a task done or things done i want to expend as little energy as i need to but when you're going to relearn I mean, it takes time, right? The energy investor goes up, proficiency and efficiency go down, and frustration comes in, right? So this is why there's a tendency to do that. And then especially at the organizational level, as you know, right, that value and belief system is built in, the bureaucracy is built in, right? So to overcome that, that's why you need these kind of change agents, guys like you know Admiral Rickover that came in and just kicked over cans because he saw a vision, he had the vision, he understood what others didn't, and even what I've learned at the Naval Institute, right, is, you know, these early disruptors after Civil War, they looked forward and they could see that the Navy we had and coming out of the, you know, 19th century into the 20th century was not the Navy we're going to need to be able to succeed in that modern world that eventually would lead to World War One and then World War Two. So you do need those people who are willing to challenge that and then overcome and sometimes when there's resistance to change and just make it happen. So... I think that was a great point. Again, it applies, like you said, Joe, all the way from that direct level of leadership coming into a new shop, team, or division, all the way up the organizational level. So any leader should consider that. All right, number five, we get what we raise, so raise wisely. So talk about this one. I was that young sailor being raised, and I was very fortunate. You know, when we talk about uh, we get what we raise, so raise wisely, you know, you're raising the next generation of leaders. Sometimes we forget that we are someone's first chief. We are someone's first LPO. You know, we go back to that first 72 hours video, you know, and look at what happened to them in that first 72 hours. So when I was, uh, again, I'll go back to a young air traffic controller. You know, I had a great uh, first leading chief, Hal Chilson, and I talk about Hal a lot about raising the next generation air traffic controller and raising me as a leader. but. He was really great about pointing out how to 
you know, read manuals, how to not cut corners in air traffic control, and then translated some of those how to not cut corners as a sailor. And so, to me, that translated into, you know, as a, an LPO leader, as a as a chief, as a fleet master chief, we are raising sailors when they're not in our sight, when we don't see them. They see us around the corner, uh, hands in pockets, jackets zipped up, how we give way to senior petty officers and senior officers in a passageway, the language we use, how we manage crisis under pressure. So they're watching so closely. So I raised this sentiment when I was the third fleet command master chief. And the tech fleet admiral had a conference and brought back, you know, the senior echelon and the senior enlisted leaders. So there we were, you know, in this big room, last day of this three-day, you know, how do we cure cancer? How do we solve world problems? How are we doing in the Pacific fleet? And the admiral had said, uh, or star Pacific fleet admiral, uh, said, I'm going to end this session with asking the command master chiefs what they are seeing and what their perspective is. So when he got to me, he said, you know, I said, what's your advice, Master Chief Portloff? And I said, well, sir, my advice is zip up your jacket, sir. And everybody in the room froze <laughs> and looked at me like, you know, I had just set the place on, or at least set myself on fire. And he looked at me and looked down at his jacket, and he smiled, and he zipped up his jacket. And he said, go on. And I said, well, sir, you know, we're discussing 3M and safety and personal behavior and life-work balance in this three days. But we have senior officers and senior enlisted walking around with their hands in their pockets and jackets unzipped. And these are basics. You know, you started this conversation three days ago with, we need to get back to basics. Yet here we are. So if the four-star admiral can't zip up his jacket three-quarters of the way, how are we expecting sailors to go, well, if it's okay for the admiral, then it's okay for me, and what else are we letting slip by? What else are we not conscious of that we are doing as leaders on one hand, but telling sailors to do on the other? So we get what we raise, we have to raise wisely, and that includes silently uh, in our character and our actions and what we're doing. So my advice is zip up your jacket three quarters away, and I think we'll see 3M and damage control improve. And I know that sounds simple, but it works. Yeah, it's like the broken window theory that they went to in New York City, right? The theory was like, hey, we start with the small crimes, and then and then that leads to impacting and influencing the broader stuff, too. And it shows you care. And frankly, you know this, right? So doing it right again is hard. It requires energy, it requires a passion and a focus on these things, but just not on doing it right yourself, but investing in your people daily. So if you're going to grow people, it takes time to sit down and learn a, learn what they're about, learn what motivates them and what their goals and things are, and, and then being a person who helps them. Because the legacy you're leaving, and I, there's a section of that in the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, and I'm glad you talked about it, because I talked about Joe Campa. He used to talk about that first chief and the impact that first chief made on him. So I was compelled to write that and quote that in the Chief Petty Officer's Guide. But this thing of legacy, right, that's the attitudes and the behaviors that are left behind when we leave. And that's not necessarily when we leave the service, but it's when you leave work, right? So when you're not around, do your people do what they need to do to the standards 
what we would call integrity, when people aren't around and watching because you've been able to model and effectively influence them to do those things. And then another point you made that I love is your legacy isn't just with your sailors that you're leading, the people who work for you. It's for the leaders, right? Because you are influencing and shaping them and making sure they're staying on course. But it's also for your peers. Because as we know, in the chief's mess, right, we're leaving a legacy of chief's mess behavior behind too. So we all have a role as chief petty officers in influencing that. Anything else on that? I'd like to give you another quick example there. But uh, in the what we, we get, what we raise, so raise wisely is when I first got to the USS Milius as the command master chief and waited two weeks before I had a chief's meeting, you know, to get uh, input from the chief and introduce myself. And, you know, when I asked, hey, how can I help? What, where are we at? And how do we move forward? One of the chiefs had said, well, we need to get our chief's authority back. And I said, well, you know, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, the, you know, the XO or what have you, you know, in the previous echelon, they, they turned everything over to the junior officers, you know, the division officers and so forth. And again, I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, we're not, we're not doing, you know, these kind of checks anymore. And we're not writing evals and, you know, we're not doing the sale of the quarter boards anymore. And I said, well, you know, okay, let's go find out what's going on here. I said, but, you know, I'll have a chat with, you know, XO and CO and see where this is coming from. I said, but, you know, for now, nobody takes your authority away. You give it away. So your sailors are watching you as, as a chief give this away. So you take it back. So how do we do this? Go start doing your checks. You don't need permission to go check a fire bottle or a battle lantern or uh, you don't need permission to write a midterm counseling or to prep an evaluation or a package for sale at the quarter. You don't need permission to do that. So do it and get this front line into your division officers and let's see how this works for 21 days. And, you know, they did. And the whole mess got together and said, you know what, you're right. You know, we're right. Let's go out and just resume doing what we do as chiefs and, you know, others will follow. And I had the CEO at the time kind of ask me, hey, what's up with the chiefs? They're checking fire bottles and picking up trash out of the angle irons. And I'm hearing some other chatter about stuff they're doing. And I said, they're being chiefs. I, I don't understand what the question is. And uh, come the following quarter, you know, we did a, a sailor the quarter board and uh, did the packages. And I presented them to the department heads and said, Hey, this is the way that this is going to work here because sailors need to see how to become a leader in the next step and the next level. And if you bypass the chief's level, we're not raising that next, you know, enlisted sailor to be a great LPO, a great chief, or an LDO or division officer, you know, down the road. You know, we worked it out, but, you know, that's just another example I would give on how I learned and kind of reinforced that we get what we raise, so raise wisely. Absolutely. And it ties back into the first point. Don't wait for things to happen to you. Make them happen for you. So I think that brings us full circle. My guest today has been Fleet Mashey, retired Fleet Mashey, Joanne Ortloff, uh, and she's been offering us her top five lessons learned. So, Joe, thanks for taking time with me again. Good luck to you. Thanks, Paul, and, and thanks for what you do with the podcast and sharing some insights. Absolutely. All right, everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Cutlass Podcast. If you want to learn more about the topic we've discussed today or any other episodes, you can check out the Chief Petty Officer's Guide or any of the resources we've listed or discussed. To provide me feedback or suggest topics for future episodes, please email me at cutlassleadership at gmail.com. As always, make sure to subscribe to the Cutlass Podcast on your podcast channel. 
And also like it, share it, and comment so you can help me get this content out and about. I'm Paul Kingsbury. Work hard to keep your cutlass leadership sharp. Reflect, improve, and take what you learn to become a sturdy, versatile, incredible leader who makes a positive difference in your personal and professional life.